You're listening to the Daily Mishnah Podcast with Benedict. So as we go through this first chapter of the Mishnah of Megillah, we're in this, we're, we're into halachic poetry. We're in the string of expressions that a lot of people call the Ain Bains because it's a string of expressions that all begin with Ain Bain. There's no difference. Or to be more precise, Ain Bain dot 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 Ella. There's no difference except. And we started off by saying there's no difference between Adar Rishon and Adar Sheni. There's no difference between Adar 1 and Adar 2. That's how we 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 got got onto the whole subject of no differences but now we're what we're freely associating and it's as if we're remembering back to the days of the temple and remember we began the mishnah began by remembering back to yehoshua bin Nun. so we are in galut purim is the only is the first festival the first Jewish festival to be observed in Galut, to be created in Galut. So we're in Galut. And yet, and, and later in the, the Masachet, we're going to discuss how we run a shul, how a Jewish community runs. And yet, at the same time as we're thinking about how to behave in Galut, we're also thinking back to how we used to behave in the land of Israel. So we'll see this tension as we go through the Ain Bains. And we're going to begin with a neder. We're going to begin with an oath. There's no difference between someone sworn not to benefit from his fellow and someone sworn not to benefit from his neighbor's food. So maybe you'd, you'd make an oath. You'd say, oh, yeah, I swear that this person can't have any benefit from me. Or I'd swear this person can't have any benefit from my food. It, it's not a, it, it's it's actually, it's not a very neighborly thing to swear, actually. Anyway, there's, may, maybe, maybe that's the connection with Purim, of course, because in at Purim, the community has to come together. That's one of the features of Purim, that the, what seemed to be a community that was, was not very, was not observant. A community that was scattered and disconnected somehow came together at Purim. That's really one of the things that we learn from the Megillah. So maybe that's why this is in the mind of the authors of the Mishnah. But there's no difference if someone is sworn not to benefit from their neighbor or not to benefit from their food. But setting foot. Now, you might, for example, you might take a shortcut by walking over your neighbor's courtyard. If you're sworn not to benefit from anything that he has, you can't take a shortcut over his courtyard. But of course, if the oath only applies to food, you can. So that's one of the exceptions. And um, vessels which are not used for food. Maybe, you, uh, I mean, a, a kli can be anything, right? It could be an item of clothing. It could be a hammer. If you don't benefit from him at all, you can't borrow a hammer. But if you only, 
you're only prevented from borrow from benefiting from his food. Well, you could borrow a hammer. You can probably borrow a hammer, but you can't borrow a pot and cook in it. So those are the exceptions. Vessels which are not used for food and setting foot, that is setting foot in a courtyard that he owns. Ain bain nadarim li nadavot. There's no difference between a vowed offering and a free will offering. But the vowed offerings carry responsibility. So if they, and we learned this, by the way, in the Mishnah of Shkalem, that if they get lost, the person that makes the vow has to replace them. Or if they die or become blemished on the way to the Beit Midash, the person that made the vow has to replace them. That's the difference between a neder and a nedava. If it's made with a neder, with a vow, you have to, you are responsible for it. And if it's just a nedava, a, um, a free will offering, if it, if you know, you can make the offering, but if it gets lost, if it dies, it's not your problem, it's the temple's problem. That's Mishnah 6. Next, Mishnah retains us in kind of the world of the Beit Midash. There's no difference between a Zav, someone who has an omission, who sees who sees it twice. This is twice in, I think it's this is twice in three days, twice in three days. Who sees it twice? If you see it three times, then you have to bring you you you're, you wait for seven days. You dip, but you also bring a korban. So the third sighting in, obligates you in the korban. There's no difference between a mutsara who's quarantined. Now this is all in the in, a, in the middle of Vayikra, the parsha of. Um, um, Mutsura. the someone who develops tsarat who develops what this disease which is often translated as leprosy but it's it's clearly not leprosy but it's some kind of skin infection it's associated with slander someone who develops this disease is actually quarantined for seven days and if nothing changes he's quarantined for another seven days and then if everything has, if it's gone away, he's let out. But if the disease seems to be definitely, seems to have definitely taken hold, he's defined as someone who definitely has sarat. And that is the mukhlat. Mutsura musgar is a mutsura who's quarantined and mutsura mukhlat is someone who's declared to be definitely a mutsura. So one of them, one of them is just temporarily shut up, and the other is actually declared to be definitely a mutsura. Ain be mutsura muskali mutsura muklat ela priya ufrima. There's no difference between the two categories except dishevelling of hair and tearing the clothes. Because if you are definitely a mutsura, your hair is dishevelled. That's the, those are the following pasukim. The kohen actually dishevels your 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 hair and and tears your clothes. There's no difference 
between someone who's pure after being quarantined. So then, in other words, it's just that the passage of time has made it evident that he's not um, that he's not a mutsura, and one who's and someone who's pure after being a definite mutsura, Ela he has to shave and he has to bring these birds are the sacrifice he has to bring a pair of birds to the temple and now now we come back to Beit Knesset we go from Beit Midash to Beit Knesset there's no difference between scrolls and tefillin and muzuzot, except that scrolls can be written in any language. This is really fascinating. And the Rambam, I mean, as a universalist, makes clear any language really means any language, any script. You can write a Sefer Torah in any language and any script. That's according to the opinion of Rabbi Yudah Nasi. Whereas, Ela, Shasfar, Ela, Sheham, and Muzot are only written in this this language called Ashurit. Ashurit is literally Assyrian, but it, it's actually the square Aramaic script, which was adopted by the um, the Persian Empire in in Bavel, basically in Assyria. And ancient Hebrew script looks completely different. Maybe tomorrow I'll bring you a picture of ancient Hebrew script, but. The square script that we use today is a, is Aramaic script, and it was adopted by the Persian Empire in uh, after they conquered the after well after they co conquered the Babylonians, who themselves conquered the Assyrians. So Tefillin and Muzuzot have to be written in Ashurit. And Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel, by the way, doesn't agree. Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel, Omer Af. And Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel says, no, 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 no. The only foreign language other than Hebrew that scrolls can be written in is Greek. And by the way, the halacha goes according to Rabbi to Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel. Now, we don't write scrolls in Greek today, maybe because we don't speak Greek well enough. But it would seem from the Mishnah that that is an option. Why is it that we can't write to if we can write a scroll in greek why can't we write to fill in and mezuzot in greek and there's a wonderful wonderful um comment in the gemara which i couldn't resist bringing to you the gemara asks to fill in mezuzot my tama to fill in and mezuzot what's the reason well, what is the reason that these have to be particularly written in aramaic script and that means by the way in hebrew Whereas, um, at least according to Rabbi Yudah ben uh, Rabbi Yudah Nasi, um, Sfarim Torah scrolls can be written in any language at all, any language in the world. As if Rabbi Yudah Nasi is a universalist. It's really quite inspirational, actually. He's a complete universalist. Why is it? And the Gemara asks, Mishum bahu because it is written with regard to them. They shall be. And of course, I've written the quotation out large for you on the translation. It's a famous, it's the second Pasuk of the Shema. These, these words shall be, 
shall be vehayu, they shall be on your heart. But Havayatan Yahu, as they are, so they shall be. There's something which is absolutely timeless about the words of Shema. Just as they are, so they shall be. We have to write them out in our traditional script. And somehow we, I mean, I don't know why. The Gemara is not asking that we write them out in ancient Hebrew, but it seems that the traditional script at the time the Gemara was Ashurit, the square Aramaic script, Aramaic script that we use today. As they were, so they shall be. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Daily Mishnah Podcast with Benedict.